So as we continue today um, in our series on Philippians, um, we're coming to a place you know, where we've heard about Paul's circumstances, what it is that's brought him to Rome and the things that he's had to suffer as a consequence of that. And the Philippians have heard of all of those events and they have expressed concern. They've actually sent help that we're going to learn about a little bit more uh, when we get further into Philippians. But they've sent some help to him and they've heard some things um, about uh, the troubles that he's had to go undergo, the circumstances in which uh, he has suffered. And he's concerned that they understand that he's okay. Uh, he wants to explain his circumstances, but the concern that he really has is that he wants to understand the meaning behind those circumstances. Is there a purpose to those circumstances? You know, he's been betrayed by his countrymen. He's been shipwrecked at sea. He's been imprisoned in Rome. And uh, the question is, does that mean um, that under, you know, having suffered all of that and undergoing all of that disappointment, uh, is there any reason for him to be joyful? Can he still be joyful? Does he still have um, access? Is there a present reality or experience of the Lord in his, in his life? And is there, can they be happy for him, even in the midst of all of what it is that he's undergoing? Now, sometimes the circumstances that we are going through are circumstances that are the result of our own doing. You know, we're right to draw conclusions about choices that we've made and the circumstances that those actions bring with them. I told you, right, when I was a young boy, um, I was very tempted to pull rubber bands, see how far they would stretch, see how far I could get them or shoot them, and my parents warned me against that. Um, and I soon, I, I, I soon learned why I shouldn't do that. Um, it took me probably a lot longer to apply that knowledge in my actions than it did. But th that, that was me suffering the consequences of my own actions. And though, you know, that's an easy one to say, well, if it hurts when you do that, don't do that. There are sometimes circumstances in which we can't draw a straight line between those two things. Uh, there are times in which the meaning or the cause or the reason for the sorts of bad circumstances that we're suffering, why it is that they come to us, and we can't discern their purpose. Now, in Philippians 1, I think Paul's persecution, his circumstances, um, they're not his fault. Um, but there are people who think that they are a consequence of who he is. There are people who are seeking to stir up more trouble for him and that the circumstances in which he is undergoing are because of his own weakness. And um, they believe that as a consequence, Paul is lesser than the rest of the apostles. Now, most often for us, it is the pain that arises from trying to understand our circumstances' meaning that is the most trying for us, right? If, if, if we could assign a purpose to it, or we could see the good that would come out of it, the, the ability to endure it um, would make it somewhat more, would make it less difficult, less troubling. 
But Paul says that he is rejoicing in his circumstances. And why is that? He says, because regardless what people are saying about his chains and about him being imprisoned, the gospel is being preached. And that the gospel is being preached is the circumstance that he has his eye on. That there actually is good news to share. That is what's significant to him. That's what gives him meaning. That's the quality in which he understands the circumstances of his life. It's why he's come to Rome. And in that, right, in his confidence and in his joy, um, he's going to continue to rejoice and to be confident. As we look at Philippians chapter 1, 19 to 26, we're going to be looking at three things for which uh, and in which Paul has confidence. And consequently, there are things about which we might have confidence too. Before David Collins comes and reads our passage this morning, let me pray for us. Would you join your hearts with mine? Uh, Heavenly Father, um, I just think about the, the sentence of the man um, who, who said that suffering is your megaphone by which you call out to a deaf, a deaf world. And so, Lord, we, as we think about our own difficulties and circumstances and our own suffering, um, it does uh, remind us that there's something there that we have questions about, that we need help with, uh, that we need wisdom and insight about. So, Lord, I ask that you would send the Holy Spirit uh, to turn the light on in our hearts and in our minds and that we might see Jesus and all of who he is um, to see that we have a joy that cannot be taken away from us. And uh, we will give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 1, 19 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, for that which full courage now is always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I should choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of God. All right, so firstly, Paul is confident in his deliverance. The first thing that we need to see is that Paul, as he speaks about this confidence in his deliverance, um, it doesn't equal... That, all, that things are going to turn out all good. And I say that in a colloquial sense. You know, it's all good. Paul's not saying that. That what's happening to him or what will happen to him means that it's going to be all good. You know. He's speaking about these present circumstances, you know, that he believes his deliverance is coming and that in his deliverance he will be unashamed 
And catch the phrase, whether by life or by death. When he's thinking and talking about deliverance, he's meaning something different than maybe the way in which we might lay a hold of that promise that he's saying about. When we're faced with significant hardship, do we have the expectations as to what the outcome has got to be in order for it to be good or bad? Right, Paul's got some idea. Um, He expresses it a bit later. He's going to talk about it, but first of all, he's saying here that life or death is not the conclusion which will mean for him whether it's turned out good or bad. Right? He, he seems to be remarkably uninterested in whether or not it turns out for him living or dying. And that, that should surprise us. It should catch us. Now, just as he rejoices that the gospel of Jesus is being preached, he's got confidence that his life or death is not the point. Deliverance for Paul, as I said, means something else. It's my eager expectation, he says, and hope that it will not be at all, that he will not at all be ashamed. Paul's eager expectation and hope is this is what he's looking forward to, is what's giving him confidence. Um, the word eager expectation is a great um, kind of metaphorical word uh, that it describes the head being stretched. And being stretched, it's, it's describing the person who's up on their tippy toes and craning their neck in order to see something that is coming up over the horizon. Eager expectation. Paul standing on his tippy toes to try and glimpse the first glimpse of the fulfillment of the promises of Jesus, right? And for him, bodily resurrection, eternity with Christ, the fullness of the abiding presence of an eternity with Christ and the love of God, this new heaven and this new earth, right? These are the things to which he is hoping in and looking in. And he believes that his faith is going to be in Christ, is going to be vindicated in that day. Right, that when all accounts are being settled or have been settled, Paul knows that he will not be disappointed in the outcome. He will not respond after it's all kind of played out and it's all being settled. He will not in that moment say, yeah, but what about? There won't be any questions. He will respond instead with, at last, At last, it will all be filled full, right? In this present hope he lives, right? In the future glory of God's fulfilled promises, he believes, right? He says, I will not be at all ashamed. Now, the Philippians, they knew something. He's speaking actually language that they would be aware of. The Philippians knew about honor and shame, about glory and shame. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. You might describe it or think about it in terms of a little Rome outside of Rome. There were stratifying lines in Philippian culture. Um, In much of the world right outside of Rome, you, you had those who were doulos or slaves, and you had those who were freedmen, those who had formerly been slaves but had won their freedom. Their, their, their freedom. 
there were classes among Roman citizenship. And you might just have people who were living where it was that they were born, but because they were in the Roman Empire, they were actually aliens living in their own land. They were people of the nations um, under Roman rule, but they didn't have citizenship in Rome. And then you have Roman citizens themselves um, who had classes, who in Philippi um, determined what it was that you could wear. You know, whether you wore a tunic, whether you could wear a toga, whether your toga could have a purple band around the base of it, right? It dictated what you could wear in Roman culture and who you could marry. So this, all of this, this strata in the, these strata in the culture um, spoke to the honor and the glory that was available to a person. And Paul knows about that. He's speaking about that to them. You know, in Acts 22... Paul talks about his own citizenship as a Roman. And he tells a Roman centurion who's been beating him or is going to beat him um, that he inherited his Roman citizenship. And that right there um, sets Paul up in a class above. That's because this means that Paul's family was esteemed in Tarsus, in the region of Cilicia. And as a consequence, right, he he was of a noteworthy, respectable, honorable family. And this causes that Roman centurion to kind of check. And he says, I had to buy my, my citizenship. And Paul says, yeah, well, I was born a Roman citizen. Right? People in the Roman Empire, people in Philippi especially, this Roman colony, their Roman citizenship lifted them up above others and over their conquered Macedonian neighbors. Not everybody in Philippi was a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship gave them rights and privileges that those who were not citizens were denied. And and Paul understood that sense of honor and glory in Roman citizenship. And in chapter 3, we're going to take a little break during the season of Lent from Philippi, from Philippians and come back to it. But in chapter 3, he's going to talk about other things to which he might um, place his glory in or might kind of forward or advance with other people to say, look, I, you know, I have these honors. Right? But his Roman citizenship and these other things to which he could point, they are not what he glories in. What's his glory and honor? His glory and honor is Jesus Christ. Right? That Jesus Christ would be honored in his body. Right? Paul's body. That is his flesh. Um, That the life that he is living in this life by faith, in obedience to Jesus through the real-world experiences and circumstances that he has undergone, right? That this is his honor, to be able to do that for Jesus. That's what his honor is. And he believes that Jesus will show Paul honor, right? Because Paul is looking to Christ in all things. It is in Christ that he is trusting. And it is Christ that is governing the choices that he makes, and Paul believes that this deliverance is going to lead to his vindication. If you 
kind of draw a picture, you could maybe, uh, the way which you could think about vindication is the, the line in Psalm 23 in which we read that the Lord shall set before the, David. David says, the Lord shall set before me a meal in the presence of my enemies. Now, you may think, that's a dinner party. This sounds like a real bummer. You know, why would they, right? But the picture is, is that the Lord is honoring David by setting and saying, David is in fellowship with me. And that those others, right, they are standing outside. They've not been honored in such a way. That's vindication. Now, I, maybe we, are not so farsighted in our focus. Um, for me, I can remember, you know, in becoming a Christian, um, there was, a, in some senses, there was a sense of doing something that I believed was honorable. Um, you know, you think about a person who becomes a Christian sometimes could become one because that they believe that living a good life will lead to a good life. Um, but there's a problem, is that some point in a life, there comes a test, and the test is, is the cost of following Jesus in the real world worth it? When things get very difficult, is it worth to keep on when I am desperately dependent for something to happen, for rescue, for deliverance. Um, if uh, living in the real world and living in such a way as to honor Christ is really going to cost me something, that, that's where it comes, where the, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Right? It, it, takes, it takes courage to be a Christian because it is a gamble of everything that the world says against what the world says is going to lead to your glory, right? Your significance, your success, what you imagine as your happiness in the things of this world, right? It is a gamble of choosing him over that. How is it that we can be happy when we have to face the realities of our own weaknesses and our own short-sightedness and fickleness, fickleness and cowardice. I mean, what, when we're presented with the hardships of life, what do we do? How can we continue, right? So that's the cost, and he's going to talk some more about that. But Paul says that there's a great weapon. There's a great weapon, and there is a great helper in the midst of living this life of faith. He tells his friends in Philippi that his continuing and fruitful ministry will be a direct consequence of their prayers for him and the help of the Holy Spirit. Right, these two gifts that we have, intercessory prayer on behalf of friends, um, these two gifts that he mentions, their prayer on his behalf, and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, he said, this is going to lead to my deliverance, whether in life or in death. Now, this is a, this is a great moment for us to kind of, kind of check in and ask ourselves, how is it that your prayer life and your asking for and reliance upon the Holy Spirit 
plays itself out in your day-to-day world. Apparently, it, it's crucial for Paul. Right? This is something that we, we need to be praying for one another. This is why we spend time in the service praying for one another. That's why we send out prayer requests on, you know, for one another. And one of those things that you can always pray for anybody, if you don't know what to pray for them, is, Lord, give them the Holy Spirit. Not that they're not saved and that the Holy Spirit hasn't been given, but we need, uh, we need a freshness. We need renewal. We need ongoing dependence. We need to be, you know, we need to eat every day. We need to be fed every day. So pray this for yourself and for one another. You know, and, and what's going to happen when you do that? Does that mean that all of the things that you imagine that you hope would manifest themselves in your life are going to manifest themselves in your life? That everything's going to go right? That, you know, after the prayer, you're going to say, oh, it's all good. Or is what going to be provided to you, is what going to be manifest in your life, is, is that going to be an abiding confidence regardless of the circumstances? A continued hope in spite of what it is that you see going on around you? Say what Paul is going to talk about later in chapter 4, a peace that surpasses understanding? That's what's going to be given, right? That's going to be provided and is going to turn out for our deliverance, right? Do you believe that you could be so confident in Jesus' deliverance that there will in no way be shame for you regardless of how it is that things turn out for you in this world? Can, can your view of, from your eternal future, right, looking towards your eternal future with eager expectation and hope, believing, right, that from the vantage point of that future day, looking back, will you, do you believe that you'll be able to say, putting my faith and trust in Jesus was worth it? Not, that, not to say that you're going to rejoice in the difficult things that happen, but are you going to say, right, at that moment, at last? Right, Paul is confident that things are going to turn out for his good, his redemption, his salvation, his deliverance. Okay, so that's the first thing, big thing, um, his deliverance. Secondly, concerning the future that's set before him. He, he doesn't have an expectation or a demand as to how it is that things are going to turn out. The options for Paul are win and win. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? I'm presented with two wonderful options, he's saying. Right? How, how are we facing our mortality? Are we facing it with a cavalier mindset? Right? Can you imagine facing your mortality without the fear of your own death? Right? What if you viewed your own death not merely as something that you can endure or get your head around or not be afraid of, but then to imagine it as being something that would lead to your gain? And going back to what he said a bit earlier regarding why, like what I said earlier about what, you know, why I and why some of us may have made a decision to become a Christian, right? We, 
we make this decision to follow Christ out of a desire to do the right thing. And we imagine that in doing the right thing, it's going to bring to us a good life. It'll bring gain to this life. Right? To believe that my becoming a Christian means that I'm guaranteed a blessed life, that I won't die too early, that I won't be touched by tragedy, is just not true. Paul's life is a testimony to that. And, and we're too easily deceived into thinking that the only life that is worth living is the life that we have here. And what we can get out of this life, that, that this is the real world and the world to come is the imaginary world. Friends, this world is passing away. This world is being given over to decay. This is the world that is going to come crashing down. Paul says he's hard-pressed between the two. It, it, it's not hard-pressed between the outcomes that he and the Philippians prefer would happen, what they desire would happen, and, and, and the disappointment that they may face if it doesn't happen that way. Those aren't the things that have him cornered. The things that are hard-pressing in on him on all sides are his desire to be with Christ and to remain in the flesh. He longs to be with Jesus. And he desires to honor Jesus in his continuing ministry in this world. This is what's putting the squeeze on his heart. Right? You may find yourself at the end of a difficult day or a difficult week and just say, you know what? I'm done. Uh, you know. I'm ready to get on the bus and go. Um, sometimes that desire to go that we feel uh, is oftentimes merely a desire for relief. That we want to be relieved of the pressure that we are put under and what the pressure of living by faith causes us, right? Of, of standing firm. Paul's not looking for relief. That's not what he's saying. He wants something more. He, he wants to step fully into an eternity with Jesus Christ and into his love, or he wants to continue loving Jesus' people in the way in which Jesus loves him. That's the choice that is set before him. Am I ready to go? I'm ready to go, he says. But I can see how much you need. So Paul's confident, right? He's confident in his deliverance that he has in Jesus Christ. He's confident that from the vantage point of eternity that he will in no way have regrets about his trusting in Jesus Christ. And that's all great for Paul, but what about the Philippians? They're watching all of this from afar. And that brings us to this third point, that Paul is confident in God's purpose for the Philippians. Right? Paul... To continue in the flesh is for their benefit. If Paul is to remain in the flesh, it's to help the Philippians advance in Christ's purpose for them, to continue in their progress in the gospel. They're growing up into him who is the head. The Holy Spirit is growing the Philippians in completeness and perfection. It's better for them that he remains. And he says he will indeed remain and come to the Philippians again. And in so doing, it will cause them to give glory to Jesus Christ. 
But their completed, fulfilled, perfected faith is not one that is based on their performances and their circumstances, but it is in their glorying in Jesus Christ, and that will in no way be denied them. What, what are the things that for you? What are the things in which you glory in? It'd be understandable for the Philippians to glory in their Roman citizenship. What would it look like for the Philippians to glory in Christ? What does glorying in Jesus Christ look for, like for us? You know, will, will the glory that we seek mean that we are living comfortably enviable lives? I think the crucial moment, right, for me in my conversion story occurred a year or so after I walked the aisle and, be, and professed faith in Christ. Um, I had rededicated my life to Christ and I had come to a place where I unflinchingly and confidently said, thy will be done. You know, your life, right, for mine. And I give you my life. I will follow you. Now, I viewed my relationship at that point in some ways like an exchange. I gave him the place that he was due in my profession of faith and in the practice of the way in which I lived my life. And in exchange, he would give me what I wanted. When I didn't get what I wanted, I was personally devastated. I was not confident. I was shaken and the shaking of my faith brought into question the depth of my own conversion. Right? The, the terms of my commitment and the Lord's exclusive and devoted call on my life were made a little bit clear in that moment. You know, for those of you who have made a vow to someone to love them in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, when you when you make that vow, you really don't know what you're up for. You know, they say that in a marriage, you remarry the person you married up to 10 times over the course of a marriage. Right? Because you're recommitting to those promises. You understand what those promises mean. You know, when I found my circumstances... Um, in college as hashtag not blessed, um, I began to understand the depth of my commitment and, and the commitment that was being asked of me in walking with Jesus. Paul understood the depth of that commitment, and that's why he's in Rome. Paul will go on living as Christ wills for the sake of the Philippians and not for himself. Right, this is... This is what the Lord, um, I won't say negotiated, but that's the only word I can think of, that he negotiated with Paul when he called him at the very beginning. And Paul went all in. Now, the all-in life that Paul lives, we're going to see a little bit better next week um, as we see something of the cost um, to, of, of what we've been called.